All right, we're joined now by Chris Herring, Sports Illustrated senior writer covering the association. Chris, thanks for joining us. You know, the Bulls, they've looked very good through 15 games. Last night's uh, not the best outcome, obviously blowing that 20 points lead. But what are your overall impressions of this Bulls club early on? I'm not sure how you could have an impression other than being impressed literally by, I think a lot of us expected them to be good offensively. Um, certainly knew that there was the potential for them to be explosive offensively. And they haven't even really gotten it completely going yet, which has been out for, you know, the last few games because of COVID. But even when he was there, he was just starting to kind of warm up a little bit from this Arctic cold uh, with his outside jump shooting and kind of struggling around the basket. DeRozan and Levine wasted no time. Lonzo Ball wasted no time. And Ayo uh, Desumu has looked fantastic off the bench for them. But I think the real surprise has, has obviously been the defense and how solid they've been on defense. You know, it's a team that has deficiencies in certain spots. I think you saw some of that with the Portland game and the inability to really stop Nurkic, to stop, um, to stop Larry Nance. They really are thin at, at the backup big position. Uh, not having Patrick Williams due to his injury hurts them, and I think it will hurt them at other points in the season. But Still, to, to look up and to see that they're holding teams like the Nets and holding teams like the Knicks and um, you name it, four or five minutes without baskets, the, the Sixers, the Celtics, any number of games where they've had these comebacks, they mount these comebacks in part because they can hold the other team four or five minutes without a basket in a fourth quarter. And it, it speaks volumes about the fact that they've had one of the best defenses in the fourth quarter and the NBA and with lineups that I don't think certain people thought would be very good. Caruso has been a, a, a revelation for them. I think a lot of us knew that, but playing him and Lonzo and then pressuring the ball has kind of taken some of the, the pressure off of the backline defense that I think we had questions about. You know, Chris, the Eastern conference feels pretty wide open right now. The Nets haven't hit their stride yet. The Bucks as well. How viable do you feel like the bulls are as a contender this season in the Eastern Conference? Yeah, I, I want to see them do it a little bit more. Uh, I, I want to see how they address the backup big situation. I want to see Vooch look like the all-star scorer that he's been. And, you know, looking at games like last night, I want to see them be able to consistently close those out. Now, they've, they've shown the ability to do that in other games, but we've also seen in a couple moments now where Zach Levine loses his composure just a little bit and kind of a key moment. You know, it, it didn't come back to bite them. Um, a couple games ago when he didn't get a call that he, he wanted and then threw down a dunk kind of as, as, you know, basically to kind of put refs in their place. But he did have a really costly technical foul yesterday. So this is the first time in the NBA that he's going to be really playing games of this magnitude. Um, and the same could be said of Vooch. The same, I guess you can't quite say that of DeRozan, but he hasn't necessarily ascended in those key moments in those years with Toronto. So it's kind of everybody's first time with, expectations certainly as a group together um but uh, you know i think this could be maybe an opportunity for caruso to kind of um explain to these guys what that's like so I'm, I'm curious to see more than anything else i don't know that i have an expectation for them i think that they are viable contenders in the east they're going to have as much scoring as anybody and if they can play defense which they've shown so far that they can do um, i think it's a lot more of an open contest and not conversation than what people had it as to begin the season i i, I picked them to be very good this season. I think I was probably one of the only people to do that um, where I wrote an article that I know even by Bulls fans was kind of laughed off a little bit when I said that 
I thought they could potentially be a home court advantage team in the first round, but um, it doesn't look so bad right now. I, I, they're not perfect, but they, they certainly are better than I think most people thought they would be. Planting your flag early and it's paying off so far, at least. Um, <laughs> Wanted to ask you about DeRozan. You, you hit on him because that sign and trade was pretty much maligned throughout the league. I mean, uh, observers didn't understand quite the fit and giving the money to a guy on the other side of 30 now, but he has been in alpha coming in here and showing that he could score from the mid range and doesn't have to shoot threes. Like he has his entire career. He scored in other ways. Why is he fit so well and ascended to, to a level we haven't seen in years from him. That was another one. And I mean, when I, when I said that I thought the bulls would be good this year, that was, I think that was kind of the key point of contention. Why I thought that so strongly and a lot of other people, including a lot of folks I respect, um, we're really low on that. And some people were kind of quibbling over the exact dollar amount that they spent and the, the fact that they had to give up that young and different people in the trade. Like at a certain point, if you're really going for it, it's not to say who cares, but who cares? The guy has been a 25 point per game scorer for any number of years now, you know, and, and not just that, but I think if you look in the nooks and crannies and, and this is, this was the only thing I could really come to. And I don't often say this, I think a lot of people did not see him play for the last few years. Toronto already doesn't get that many national TV appearances because they're in a different country. So we kind of understand that for ratings purposes and maybe it not counting toward the ratings that the networks don't want to have them on, but it looked a certain way. And maybe the perception was hindered when they year after year in Toronto would go up against LeBron and get SmackDown. And DeRozan was one of the leaders of that team and could never quite get it done. He obviously was not on that level. But then you trade him away, and the first year he's gone, Toronto wins a championship. Kawhi Leonard obviously is an upgrade on him as well. That's nothing to be ashamed of. He's still a really good player, and I think he, he altered his game in a lot of different ways in San Antonio. They asked him to play small ball power forward, which in some ways kind of protected him defensively and made him a little bit more active defensively because he's quicker than the guys that he's guarding. So there was that aspect of it where he could hide him a little bit offensively I mean the guy just kind of leveled up in a lot of ways he was asked to score a lot um, but he was also asked to distribute a lot because DeJounte Murray tore his ACL in his second year there and so he had to play make for that team and was averaging six seven assists a game while shooting a lot of mid-range shots and still getting to the line more than just about anybody in the league which is really hard to do when you shoot for mid-range as much as he does so he was always excelling at those things, but I don't think many people watch San Antonio play basketball. The other thing to keep in mind, like we saw with Kobe before his body started to break down, um, guys that have great immaculate footwork the way that DeMar DeRozan has um, and kind of have the old man game where they dribble twice or three times and can get pretty much anywhere they want to, when their athleticism starts to go a little bit, you're not quite as concerned about it because they – are such good shot makers and because they can pass the ball the way that DeRozan does. So I'm not surprised that it's working in part because it would be different if DeRozan was unwilling to pass the ball. This is a guy that immediately became probably their second best passer after Lonzo um, and took the weight off of Zach Levine, who quite frankly got tunnel vision in a lot of these games last year in closing moments and still gets it. Now And so the fact that he's able to share that load, the fact that DeRozan leads the league in scoring in fourth quarters, um, and even, this is the crazy thing, Josh, after shooting 0 for 5 last night in the fourth quarter, still has the highest percentage, field goal percentage 
and fourth quarters among guys that have taken 50 shots or more in fourth quarters. So, I mean, this is someone who has been dominant at the end of games. Zach didn't have anything close to that. He didn't even have people he could pass the ball to, let alone someone else that was dominant in those moments. So it's not always going to work. It didn't work last night, but you have to feel good about that. And that's what I was confused about and not catching from other people when they were critiquing the DeRozan move. I don't know that they knew how deficient the Chicago offense was in fourth quarters last year outside of Levine. I think Bulls fans of a certain age are going to like your new book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Of course, those great feuds between the Knicks and the Bulls during the MJ years. Um, What are some stories that we can expect from the book that comes out on presale in January? It's out for presale now. Uh, It comes out officially in January, I should say. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Make um, sure. Get the presale now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I certainly appreciate that. Um, you know, I tried to make sure I, I know this is a book about the Knicks and, you know, not everybody liked those teams. Even if you were a fan of basketball during that era, you might not have liked those teams for very good reason that I could understand. They were physical. They were nasty. I have one chapter in the book that is called knock Michael Jordan to the floor, which was a, a directive that Pat Riley gave the players and that they essentially were looking to take him out one game. And it happened to be one of the worst games of Michael's playoff career to that point. So I get that part of it. But to try to compensate for that, I wanted to try to layer the book with a lot of stories that were just kind of unknown about the teams that the Knicks were playing during those years. Certainly the Bulls, because of if you want to call it a rivalry or just kind of a matchup that neither team liked each other. The Bulls, the Pacers, the Heat. I've got at least a few stories about each of those teams or run-ins about each of those teams that really haven't been out there before. Um, as it related to the Knicks. And there was one in particular that I mentioned in the book. Um, There was one year that they were playing against each other. So I guess this was 93. Um, They played each other two years in a row. The first year, the Bulls knocked the Knicks out in a sweep. That was before Pat Riley got there. The next year, they went seven games really unexpectedly in the second round. The Knicks took them to seven games after they'd won a championship. Um, And then in the third year, it was kind of established that the Knicks were like at the height of their powers. They won the best record in the East. They'd won 60 games. They had home court advantage. They had a 25 game home winning streak at the garden. They'd beaten the bulls, I think six straight times at the garden. So it was like evenly matched. That was the Charles Smith year that season. The bulls came in and they were having a walkthrough during their shoot around to kind of go over their defensive principles for that game. And they're at the garden. And as um, I believe it was uh, one of the Bulls coaches. So I, I think it was Johnny Bach, uh, not text it was Johnny Bach, was giving defensive instruction to the team on the court. And while he was doing that, there were these like maintenance men, these, I don't know what they were, just sledgehammering away in the third deck of Madison Square Garden, like just sledgehammer against steel, just trying to, you know, doing something extremely loud. And for a while, it had been going on the whole practice. And for a while, the Bulls just ignored it because they're just shooting around. You don't really need focus to shoot, um, you know, just to practice and warm up. But at a certain point, when they're starting to go over their defensive principles, it's distracting. And so Phil Jackson finally, at a certain point, did one of those patented, like, you know, uh, pinkies and sides of mouth whistles where you could hear it six states away. And he whistled up there and he said, guys, can you, you know, we're trying to practice here and we've got to like lock this in you're not even supposed to be in here it's supposed to be a completely closed practice can you give us a few minutes and so he says that you know the bulls players are 
thankful that he said something because it was starting to distract them. They couldn't even hear. And after a few seconds, the maintenance guys shout down. One of them shouts down, F you, Phil. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it, it, to me, that moment captured what that matchup, again, if you want to call it a rivalry, you can call it that. I know they didn't ever beat Michael Jordan. They did beat the Bulls, but not Jordan. But that was, like, the cities did not like each other during that time. The, the, the Knicks fans did not like Phil Jackson, even though Phil Jackson was a Nick in, in a way. Um, they did not like Michael Jordan, you know, so this is the flip side and, and the reciprocal of what everybody knows about the Bulls already. And I kind of feel like you can't, this is what I said in the book, you can't fully understand and really wrap your arms fully around the 90s and what they were and what Jordan went through without fully understanding the Knicks and how physical they were and how the league tried to do away with the way they played basketball because they thought it was bad for the sport and they thought that someone could get hurt. And so I think there's a lot of stuff like that about the Bulls and, like I said, the Heat, the Pacers, a number of other teams that the Knicks had run-ins over the years. I try to include a handful of stories like that about every team just because I feel like it's important to layer it throughout to explain what the 90s and what the NBA was like in the 90s, not just the Knicks. That's a great anecdote. I, I can see it now, the construction worker at MSG just being you feel it's like <laughs> yeah oh, good and they stuff, couldn't man. help but laugh they could yeah. not help but laugh because it's I, just I hope you name. interviewed the construction worker for that story for that anecdote if i'd had a name i would have tracked him down too. <laughs> Two, 200 some people i spoke to um bill being one of them and a number of the bulls guys being one some of them but uh what a great time it was to just uh, talk to chop it up with people about that era for sure awesome well chris we're looking forward to it thanks as always for joining us thank you for having me josh appreciate you